This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, our town hall with Attorney General Bob Ferguson. He has served as Washington's AG since 2012 and was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. We cover a wide range of issues from the fight for reproductive rights to protecting our elections to his many recent wins on behalf of the state of Washington. In our previous discussions, I had started by asking the Attorney General what his win record was in lawsuits against the Trump administration. Since this was our first post-Trump meeting, I asked him what the final tally was. Well, the final tally was 44-2. and And although, oddly, the the tally's not necessarily done, Stephan, because um, some of the litigation is still ongoing. So just because there's a new president doesn't mean the lawsuit stops. In other words, sometimes a new president cannot undo what a previous administration did. In fact, that's why we were successful sometimes suing Donald Trump was saying, you can't just, at a stroke of a pen, undo what Barack Obama did did to protect dreamers, for example. So some litigation is still ongoing, but we're 44 44 and 2 at last count. We are so glad that that is uh, ongoing. And I have some questions, of course, to ask you about Um, the tail end of the Trump administration. But I want to start tonight by getting your thoughts about abortion rights in Texas. Um, We know that you filed a friend of the court brief asking uh, that the law banning all abortions after six weeks be put on hold pending appeals. And it was temporarily, but then on Saturday, a a circuit court uh, ruling allowed the law to stand. Do you have any sense of what may happen next here? Sure. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I got a couple of thoughts. So, Number one, uh, you know, it's not a newsflash, anyone, I think, who's who's on this Zoom call, but I, I think it's fair to say that that constitutional right to reproductive health and abortion that women have enjoyed now for many decades is in serious jeopardy. There, there's no getting around that. And we're clearly seeing numerous states around the country, red states, like Texas and others, adopting extreme state laws and frankly trying to get a case before the u.s supreme court to reverse roe v wade so you know uh, my sense is and look part of this is you know uh, a little bit of guesswork right i mean who knows what the court's going to do but i think it's fair to say that uh the future of roe v wade's in jeopardy um i think the supreme court is going to have have to wrestle that one way or the other here in the next year or so and whether they choose to do that or not is uncertain. But I guess the one thing I would add to that, Stefan, is that you know Washington State, of course, we're not a party to those lawsuits, right? That'd be the state of Texas and individuals, for example, right? Or you get the, in each state's a little bit different, but we're not a party of that. But so the voice of you and others here on, on the Zoom are, are heard in those courts because as attorney general, I can file what's called an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief with any court anywhere in the country. So we have filed, I think, literally dozens of amicus friend of the court uh, briefs uh, in states all across the country that you're reading about in the newspapers. When you pick up the paper and read about some extreme law being passed in a state like Texas, you can almost be assured we are part of a group of states filing those amicus briefs to uh, to share our perspective on uh, the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade and other issues and the challenges that those state laws present. So we'll be doing that all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, we have a team in the office that's involved, very involved in those issues. And so we take a very active role when it comes to those cases. Well, two very quick questions. What is the power ultimately of filing an amicus brief? What does that ultimately do? Yeah, so it's uh, um, they're important because it gives a perspective for the court 
beyond the briefs that two parties write. And keep this in mind, when you present your brief before different courts, whether in state court or federal court, you're under a strict page limit. Okay, and trust me, every lawyer on a complicated case wishes they had more pages to write about, uh, make their arguments, but you're limited. And so amicus briefs can flesh out points that the parties simply don't have room to. Um, an amicus brief can present state-specific um, experiences that we have in Washington State um, we can present. So amicus briefs can be tremendously helpful for a party and for a position before a court and and uh, and present, like I said, present arguments. If I just give you one example, we had uh, in a different topic, but in Washington State, the state Supreme Court, we filed an amicus brief on the $15 minimum wage down in SeaTac. That first increase to $15 down in SeaTac. And the parties, they had good lawyers arguing about it, went to the Supreme Court. And my sister general said, hey, they're not making an argument that I think is a good one. Let's write an amicus brief and make that argument to support the minimum wage. Well, guess what happened, Stefan? When the state Supreme Court issued their 5-4 decision, they cited our argument as the reason for supporting that minimum wage. So it can literally be that dramatic. That's a little bit rare to be that dramatic, but sometimes you can present an argument or a spin on an argument that the parties aren't doing, and that can literally be decisive sometimes before court. Understood, and th- thank you for for uh, explaining that. You invoked the, the Supreme Court, and we know that they declined to block this law. And um, so you you mentioned our uh, right to uh, abortion here in Washington, which I believe is protected. Mm-hmm. Does that change at all if Roe is overturned? No. So we still have protections put in place by the people of the state of Washington. So the challenge is really presented in those predominantly red states that are trying to roll back or alter or take extreme uh, um, anti-choice positions. In those states, women would lose, lose access like they are in Texas, but it would not actually impact Washington because of those of that state law put in place by the people. Well, so here's a related audience question. Uh, are people legally vulnerable if they donate to some of these organizations doing the work on the ground in Texas and maybe some other subsequent states to support reproductive rights? Well, I guess, you know, it's always challenging. I don't, you know, I try to avoid giving legal advice, right, to people. That's, uh, um, but it seems to me to be a stretch that somebody would be going after someone in Washington state making a donation to an organization. Um, so, uh, look, I've not read that Texas law in all its horrific details about, about how they make it challenging for uh, for women to access abortions and how they punish folks ever from an Uber driver, right? Or a friend who's driving you to the clinic, for example. I mean, it's truly breathtaking and outrageous. So, you know, I don't tend to have read uh, every last word of that bill to know how far that goes, but someone should just to do your homework and, and uh, uh, beforehand. But I, I'd want to be careful about giving legal advice to people on that. Speaking of breathtaking and outrageous, I, I want to get your thoughts on the new revelations about Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 elections, which you called on Twitter a failed coup attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the reporting that we've heard from the latest Bob Woodward book, there, uh, of course, was a Senate Judiciary Committee just releasing a report showing that Trump pushed the Department of Justice to declare the election uh, corrupt some nine times. I'll just ask you, what has been your gut reaction as you learn more about these new details? That's a good question. Um, I, mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I'll condense it just a few minutes because I know there's a lot of questions. Um, you know, I guess maybe two overriding thoughts, Stefan. Number one, you know, I cannot say I was surprised, okay? Um, just Donald Trump is who he is. And so I, I can't say really n- nothing can surprise me about what that man's willing to do to destroy our, our, our form of government in pursuit of 
his own devices and is his power. Uh, so I, I can't say I was I was shocked by that. Number two, you know what what I can add is that of the many thoughts I've had about it, you know I I often think about well what can I do in the role that I have as Attorney General to help avoid a similar situation or help defend the rule of law and our form of government if this ever happened again. So I'll just share with you and, and everybody else, maybe it was a week or so ago, after reading kind of the articles you, you were mentioning, Stefan, and, and I met with my sort of my top folks in my office, and I said, look, let's assume it's 2024 presidential election, and on a scale of one to 10, a one being a totally vanilla election, the, the loser concedes gracefully and we all move on the way we've understood our, our, our elections to work, assume that's a one, and a 10 is an existential threat to to our, our, our democracy and our republic, right? That's a 10. I said, let's assume it's a 10. You know, let's assume Trump is running, for example, and and he loses, but does what he did last time, only he's more sophisticated about it. And he's got legislatures in these states now that have taken certain powers away from local elected officials and all this parade of horribles that that I think is, is a very real possibility. What I said to my team was, assume it's going to be a 10, and let's start thinking about how we can be prepared for that. And using the resources of our office and the tremendous experience we have, more than virtually any state in the country, of litigating at the federal level, litigating these elections laws, you get the idea. Um, what can we be doing now to think about that and get ready for that? Um, and and frankly, anticipating potential situations where we could be helpful. We have some limitations, of course, because if there's litigation in another state, we are not necessarily a party to that. So we have some limitations, but we can still have a key role in uh, in cases that might arise. So. That's another thought I had about that, Stefan, is often my mind goes to, well, what can I do in my particular role, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's where I tend to focus my thoughts around these issues, and that's what we're going to be doing in our office as we as we look. I know it's down the road, but uh, but but I, I feel we're uniquely situated to address those issues, and, and I plan on doing that. Well, it's very much front of mind, and you know, a lot of the questions that I actually had prepared for you tonight had to do with you in your capacity as uh, Attorney General, the sorts of things that states AGs can do. Um, we had a number of questions about why there has been no move to prosecute Trump yet for trying to overturn the election. It seems like there's a growing body of evidence now. Do you have any insight into that? I really don't. I mean, that's a sort of Department of Justice issue, right? So uh, that's not an authority that I, I have, for example, and so... That'd be your, typically your Department of Justice has that kind of authority. So, you know, as I've kind of mentioned before, sometimes maybe even last year on the Zoom we had last year with, with, with this group, Stefan, is I tend to, when it comes to those national issues, I tend to focus my thoughts and energy on, on the things I have some control over. Hey, can mm -hmm. I, do I have some power over this? Do I have the ability to file a lawsuit or, or, or do something? And if I don't, I'm not saying I'm not worried about it or don't think about it, but I, I just have so much of my plate on things I do have some control over that I tend to focus on that. So that's up to the Department of Justice. Whether or not they are looking at that, I, I have absolutely no idea, and, and I wouldn't know. That would not be something they'd be talking about. Yeah, and I, I realize I'm asking you to speculate there, but it was a question that came up mm -hmm. numerous times. And, and another question that came up was, you know, somebody, Jason in particular, uh, asked, what can we do here in Washington to advance federal voting rights legislation? Um, you know, assuming that Congress fails to pass voting rights legislation, we're in kind of a void there. And so we, we see how important this is. Um, certainly, we put so much pressure on elected officials. Is there anything else that you would advise or would like to see from us as activists, uh, as, as citizens, uh, try, you know, trying to, uh, to to advance voting rights legislation. 
Sure. And I, I don't pretend, by the way, and now I can see your all your smiling faces again. So it's a lot easier talking. I can see people instead of a dark screen. So this feels, <laughs> this feels a whole lot better. So hopefully I was faking it okay there for the last 10 minutes. Um, but uh, um, I guess a couple things come to mind. I mean, I think implicit in that question or, or what you referred to was you're talking about federal issues. Well, we have our congressional delegation and and to communicate to that congressional delegation is goes without saying is important to do that. There's, there's no two ways around that. Number two, you know, we, we need a Congress with the political will to make the appropriate changes, right, um, in, in our law as well. Hey, that that is, you know, there are a relatively limited number of elections in any given year for the U.S. Senate or for Congress that are truly in play, as we know. It is a finite number. And, hey, if, if, if you happen to have resources to assist in that way financially with candidates who you think would support you that view of, of, of uh, uh voting rights and avoiding the disenfranchisement of so many Americans that we've seen taking place uh, to support those candidates is, is important. And I would say you can support them financially, but also nowadays because of, uh, of technology, you can support candidates by calling in to, to their districts and making phone calls and supporting them and doing things even from, Hey, from your, from your living room or your home office. So those things I think are, are all important. The thing I would add is it is important to elect attorneys general have a unique role, um, I was thankful that um, in the 2020 election in key states like Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania, a huge one, we had Democratic attorneys general to support the rule of law in Nevada, right? Democratic at Colorado, Democratic attorneys general who were there in those states. And that was hugely important. And look, when it comes to secretary of state positions and AG positions, those are especially important. Again, you know the, you know the states, right? Georgia, I mean, there's a handful of states where this is going on. And having elected officials who would stand up, secretaries of state who would stand up to Trump, like we saw in Georgia, God bless that secretary of state for doing that. But let's be honest, we know what Donald Trump is doing, trying to put in place people who will do what he wants next time, right? Who will succumb to that political pressure. And uh, and so supporting the right kind of candidates, I think is important. Here, here. Yeah, it's 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 a rather bleak outlook right now, and I think we uh, have our work cut out for us, uh, certainly. I want to talk next about a new lawsuit that you joined against uh, the U.S. Postal Service and Postmaster DeJoy. So last year, you successfully blocked the changes DeJoy wanted to make ahead of the election. What can you tell us about this new lawsuit? Yeah, so, um, you know, DeJoy is still there, right? Uh, he's... Uh, um, He's still there and he's not appointed by the president. The president can't fire him, so to speak, right? So he's still there. And so it's really a continuation of what we saw in the lawsuit that you mentioned that we filed, uh, I guess, last, yeah, we're in 2021, right? Last year in uh, leading up to the election. So that case, because it's so related, I'll just briefly mention what that case was about. As you as you all recall, with this guy to Joy, um, the postmaster, he was making significant changes to the postal service and the way the Postal Service conducts business and delivers mail. And those changes were so significant that, as you saw nationally, mail was being slowed down dramatically. That's important for elections. Let's say you're in Oregon, you're a vote-by-mail state. Different than Washington, though, your ballot has to be received by Election Day, not postmarked by Election Day like it is in Washington. Well, if your mail is slowed down by several days in Oregon because of these changes, guess what? You may be disenfranchised as a result of that. But hey, it matters if you're a small business and you rely on the mail to 
to move things to your business. It matters if you um, are a senior citizen and you rely on the mail for your for your medications, for example, and that is slowed down. It matters to everybody, the mail, right? Um, for me to get those political autographs on eBay, right? It's got to come through the mail. So whether it's a serious thing or not so serious, the mail matters is my point. And it really connects us as a people. It still does as a people. And for many people, that is what they depend on. So there are numerous changes that they made. We challenged those changes. Like we led a multi-state lawsuit here in Washington. So states like Michigan um, and Wisconsin, Nevada actually joined our lawsuit here in Washington because of our experience litigating these things, and we won and got injunctions. So as you've probably read, there are still things that Joey is doing, and in our view, I'm going to oversimplify a complicated case, Stephen Wright, but that he's not going through certain processes as required under federal law, that he's acting in a somewhat unilateral fashion and not taking certain steps that are, are required uh, before making those changes that impact that service. So in this case, this is not a, a one we're filing here, um, for rather complicated reasons, we, we sort of need to file it in a different court, sort of back east. And so it's a group of states that were involved last time, like Pennsylvania and New York and Washington and others joining together. So it really is a continuation of that. So it supports our postal workers, by the way, their working conditions, but also supports making sure that we get our mail in a timely manner and avoids the politicization, the politicization of the postal uh, service that DeJoy has really brought, unfortunately, um, uh, to that uh, important part of our federal government. There's so many follow-up questions that I have on that, and uh, we are we are unfortunately very limited uh, on time this evening. And so, uh, with your indulgence, I, I would like to just go through some of your uh, more uh, marquee wins on behalf of the state of Washington, uh, and we can kind of go, it's sort of the greatest hits. I would love to. Just yeah, kind of, I like that uh, already. That sounds good. <laughs> we'll hit on a few of these things. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was your appeal on the Sackler bankruptcy ruling. So the Sackler family owns Purdue Pharma, which produces OxyContin. They had agreed to a bankruptcy settlement of $4.3 billion in September to be distributed to a number of states, including Washington, that had sued the company. Why did you decide to appeal the settlement? Yeah, so I'm not sure we call this one a win, right? This one is still very much in play. So just, just to be clear at the outset. So uh, hugely complicated issue, but to distill it down uh, in, in a limited amount of time, so Purdue Pharmaceutical, owned by the Sackler family, kind of a closely held company. Sackler family members are on the board of directors, for example. They make decisions about, about Purdue Pharmaceutical. And Purdue is uh, manufactured OxyContin, um, a highly addictive opioid. They downplayed, that's putting mildly, downplayed the addictive qualities, properties of OxyContin uh, when marketing it. And that has led to a, a key contribution to the opioid epidemic that has had a profound impact on, on our state and, and, our, and our country. So Purdue, we filed a lawsuit against Purdue. We were ready to go to trial. In fact, we were just a couple months away from trial when they filed for bankruptcy back in White Plains, New York. Purdue is going through the bankruptcy. The Sackler family is not bankrupt. They're billionaires many, many, many times over. In fact, they've been pulling billions of dollars out of the company in recent years when they saw lawsuits like mine coming at the company. What the Sacklers did was devious, you know, but what they did was uh, they essentially tried to graft onto the Purdue settlement. And what they said was, hey, we'll throw in a few billion dollars to all you states and local jurisdictions. We'll throw in a few billion dollars to try to settle all this. But, um, but we sell it only if everybody's in on it. And if we, the Sackler family, and lots of folks involved in the company, individuals, lots of individuals, get a legal shield for life, from any civil lawsuit brought by any pesky attorney general in Washington state or anyone here who wants to join a class action who's been impacted by what they did. Um, I oppose that. 
Sacklers aren't bankrupt. In fact, when we grilled them at the bankruptcy hearing, lawyers from our office, um, they did not deny that they'll be wealthier at the end of making all their payments under this settlement, because they make payments over a number of years, they'll be wealthier at the end of this process than they are today. Well, look, it can't be a system of justice in our country where, hey, if you are rich enough, if you are rich enough, you can buy a legal shield for life that none of us can, or anyone we know could possibly buy. That's not how it should work. So there are some courts who think you can't do that. You can't give a third party who's not a part of the bankruptcy a legal shield for life. This particular judge, they chose this judge for reason, thinks those are okay, so he granted it. We are objecting to that approval of the settlement that he granted. And so now it's gonna start a lengthy legal battle and just a short change of very much now, Stefan, is it's my, my expectation. I think what's gonna happen is we're part of a group of states, uh, about nine states who are opposing this. I think that issue is gonna go all the way up to the US Supreme Court. Um, and it's a critically important issue and, uh, and we'll see how that plays out. But I'm, a, I'm opposed to it because it's, there's no accountability for the Sackler family. Um, they don't even have to apologize, like they have not apologized. Um, and they end up wealthier at the end of it than they are today. So it's not enough money as well for all the harm that they caused. And I mean, I could go on, as you might imagine, I've got strong views, but in a nutshell, that's why I'm opposing. And we're, we're co-leading essentially the opposition along with the state of Pennsylvania, which is the state where Purdue is headquartered. This, this is why we appreciate your work so much, uh, your commitment to justice, your commitment to fairness. Um, I, I want to talk very briefly, and I know, again, we're running so short on time here, but I want to get your thoughts on the uh, recent bank tax ruling. So in May, you asked the state Supreme Court to uphold a 2019 law that would impose a 1.2% tax on big banks, making over a billion dollars in annual profit. Um, so th I, it's my understanding the Supreme Court uh, ruled unanimously here. This reversed a lower court ruling that sided with banks saying that the tax was unconstitutional. This is consistently the argument that we hear, right, in cases opposed to progressive taxation. Can you explain briefly why that argument is wrong? Sure. And I think, by the way, I misspoke a minute ago. I think I said we're co-leading with Pennsylvania. I meant to say Connecticut. William Tongs, the attorney general of Connecticut, that's where, of course, is where Purdue is located. So sorry if I said Pennsylvania. Um, okay. And on the issue you just raised, um, just taking a quarter step back, if that's okay. So, right, this is the legislature adopted this uh, this tax, right? Um, there's a legal challenge to it from not just local banks, but the National Banking Association. Uh, they hire Rob McKenna, former attorney general, to represent them. So Rob McKenna did the oral argument in court. So, look, we, we like winning court all the time, um, uh, Stefan, but we... We especially like if we beat Rob McKenna uh, <laughs> and, and, and the national banking industry uh, and all their high-priced lawyers. Uh, we, we, we especially, there's bonus points if, if we win those. And so um, you were right that we lost the trial court. Then appeal went directly to the Supreme Court, bypassed the Court of Appeals, if I recall correctly. And we won, as I think you said, I, I think that's right. I think it was unanimously. In, in a nutshell, um, what the national banks essentially were saying is, hey, this tax is unconstitutional because it disproportionately impacts banks from out of state. Most of those paying this tax are not Washington state banks. There's only a handful of the banks that are paying it are actually in Washington state. It's banks that are from out of state. And they're saying, hey, wait a second, you little state legislature out there in Olympia, you can't adopt something that just impacts all of us out here, basically, okay, as we're doing business. And the court said, no, as long as you are not specifically targeting them, it applies to all banks who meet a certain threshold. I think it's a Hope I get this right, Stefan. I think it's uh, it's been a full day. I think it's a billion dollars of profits per year. I think was literally a threshold. It's a huge threshold. 
of profits you have to make to come under this, to have to pay this tax, just to be clear. I mm -hmm. hope I've got the right dollar amount on that. That, so was in, that. that was ultimately in the report that I read from your Perfect. office. Perfect. Then, 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 then I'm on track. And so it is a relatively finite number of banks who meet that. Almost all are outside Washington, but there are some in Washington. But the court said, well, no, it's applied evenly. If you just happen to meet that criteria, you meet that criteria. And so the court ruled, as I think you mentioned, unanimously in our favor. And so it was an important victory because, you know, the, the role of attorney general is important for a lot of reasons. But one of them is one of the jobs is to defend state laws. Right. And frankly, we do them whether we agree or disagree with them. But that is our job to do our, our best with those. And and it's important because any important public policy like that, you can almost guarantee there's going to be a legal challenge to it. It's just the way it goes. Um, and, and this one was no exception. So that's what we're up against. And it was, a, it was a big win for the team. I also want to ask about uh, capital gains uh, because mm -hmm. the, uh, there's a lawsuit against the recently passed capital gains tax. I uh, understand uh, as of a couple of days ago that Tim Iman is going to be involved. So that's oh, is he? okay. Okay. That's fun. Um, okay. what, what can you tell us about the status of that suit? Yeah. Um, that case, again, working off memory, Douglas County, if I recall correctly, is where that case was filed, was in Douglas County. Um, and we are very early in those proceedings. And so uh, what's happening now is, Frank, the court is literally like setting up what they call a briefing schedule, where the parties will file briefings on, hey, who should prevail essentially at the trial court. So I would not anticipate um, a decision from the trial court judge in Douglas County for some time. Like I think literally it could be, you know, a few months basically. Um, so that's not going to happen in the next couple of few weeks for sure. What would almost certainly happen, Stefan, is just like, well, just like in the case you just mentioned on the banks, right? There is a trial court decision. We happen to lose, but boom, and right to the state Supreme Court. That's going to happen here, whether we win or lose in Douglas County, right? Whoever loses is going to say, hey, state Supreme Court, this issue is so big. Let's even bypass the court appeals, get right to it. So the people know uh, what the law is here. So I would anticipate whether we're successful or not the trial court, that this is the type of case that is very likely to go directly to the state Supreme Court. Sometimes the state Supreme Court will say, no, no, go through the court of appeals first. We want to have the benefit of their reasoning. And then, you, then you're before three judges. Um, but the end game here is going to be the same as the banking case. It's going to end up for the state Supreme Court. There's just zero doubt about that. And so those same nine justices will decide that issue. And I guess what I can say is, you know, we feel confident uh, that we can successfully defend that capital gains tax before the state Supreme Court. But that will be, again, again our attorneys who are in court. So when you read about that, they'll quote uh, whoever we decide to do that oral argument. A case of that magnitude is often someone like Noah Purcell, my solicitor general, but it could be somebody else in our office, that that's an attorney in, in my office who is is handling that uh, that argument. I was really resisting the urge to ask you to uh, to speculate, prognosticate, and so you you've given me exactly what you can, and I appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, you you just reached a settlement with Greyhound Lines, who had been allowing uh, Border Patrol agents to conduct warrantless immigration sweeps on its buses. Tell us about the settlement here. Greyhound man, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, first, let me just say what Greyhound was doing or not doing as the case. Please. Um, so this was out of Spokane, Washington, the terminal in Spokane. And what Greyhound was doing, incredibly, really, from my standpoint, but what they were doing, they were allowing, and I mean, this is happening all the time. Okay, just be clear. This was like, this was not a once a month kind of, this is like daily, multiple times, this happened all the time. What they would do is uh, federal immigration officials would hang out there at the Spokane terminal, bus terminal and would simply board buses 
when they were filled with customers and they had no warrant. They had no probable cause. They had no reasonable suspicion. They had nothing just to be clear Steph. right? They're just, and, and Greyhound would allow them to come onto the bus and just go down the aisles and pick out people, as you might imagine, uh, disproportionately people of color, right? And ask for their documentation. Um, they would go through their luggage. They would do that in front of other customers. They will pull them off buses. They'd make them miss that bus. Uh, they would detain them. They would sometimes take the Northwest Detention Center. Some were deported. I mean, we ran the whole gamut. This happened to hundreds of people. And it became sort of news when a comedian, a local comedian in the Northwest, did a show in Wash at Washington State University, I think it was, was traveling back, went through Spokane. This happened to him. He's here legally, but this experience happened to him. And he blogged about it or put something out there and that 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 got people's attention. So we wrote to, I wrote to, literally, I was so upset about, I wrote the letter, I signed the letter to Greyhound saying, you have to change your policies. You're not telling your customers this is going on, right? That's not okay, right? If you're going to allow this, your customers don't even know that, that they could be picked up and, and harassed by these immigration officials. And number two, you shouldn't be allowing these in the first place. And Grayon said, no, we don't have the power. We have to submit to this. Well, they were wrong about that. Anyway, long story, very short, I wrote a letter saying, look, here are the things, the corporate changes you have to make. If you make those now, I will not file a lawsuit. You don't have to pay any money. Just, we just want to protect Washingtonians here. They refused to do that. And they were jerks about it. Just to be clear, they were jerks about it. And um, so we had to file a lawsuit. They resist that lawsuit. They did not cooperate. You name it. Year and a half went by. Our trial date was coming up. And literally our trial date was, uh, it was on a Monday coming up a couple of weeks ago. And like a week before the trial, I think it was, they said, okay, we'll agree to all your demands and we'll give you 500,000 bucks. Mm. And so I wrote him a letter saying, well, guess what? You know, uh, that deal would have been okay a year and a half ago, but not okay anymore. I said, you got to pay $2.2 million. And that money's going to go back to the people you harassed. Okay to try to compensate them for the problem they have. And I said, I literally wrote Steph and I said, this is a bottom line offer. If you make a counter offer of $2.1 million, I will reject it, okay? So of course they came back with an offer of a million dollars, <laughs> like three days before trial. So my doctor might deep down, no. But like two days before trial, 1.5 million. Nope, answer is still no. So literally the Friday before the trial, their whole lawyer army of lawyers had come flown in from Texas, they're in Spokane. They agreed to the 2.2 million, deliver the, the business day before the trial. And so we'll go through a process of identifying those folks who are harmed. We, we have some, some of those names, but we're looking for others who had that experience to let us know. And my team goes through a lengthy process of, of trying to determine, hey, well, what seems like a fair amount to divide that money up to, to help those folks out. Obviously, we keep some money back for the cost of us doing these trials. We can bring these in the future as well. This is from my civil rights team, by the way, which I just will say, you know, we did not have a civil rights division when I started as attorney general. We didn't do any of these kind of cases at all, had not done them for decades. And now I think it's fair to say we have the best civil rights division in the country. They could take on entities like Greyhound on these challenges. These are no other AG in the country has done this case. And Greyhound's doing this all around the country. In fact, I told my Democratic AG colleagues in a call just the other day, hey, look into this. They refuse to change these behaviors in any other state. I only had the jurisdiction over Washington, so we're making them change all those things here. But I'm encouraging my colleagues around the country to uh, to look into it as well. 
You always tout your team, and, and we know just how strong they are. Um, there are just a couple more cases that I want to run through, and unfortunately, again, uh, my apologies. We're going to have to do it very, very quickly. I do need to mention LuLaRoe uh, because it was particularly interesting because it got national attention. Yeah. There was the documentary series on Amazon Prime. Uh, a lot of us were disappointed that you didn't make an appearance. I figured that the the filmmakers asked you. But um, there, you also won against uh, Kirkland-based Reed Hine for deceptive timeshare exit practices. And one that really stood out to me is that you filed suit against insurance company Allianz for denying travel insurance claims by people with mental health illnesses. I'll ask you, do you feel like this could be precedent setting? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, a couple of things. I mean, taking Allianz, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly, Seven. I think I was in in person pre-COVID, an in-person indivisible meeting over on the east side, um, speaking in person. Uh, we were in kind of a, 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 a narrow room. I kind of I remember a room in the back of a back of a business there and uh, and spoke. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and she said that she had um, an experience where she had purchased travel insurance. Right. Um, and when it came time for the flight before the flight, they couldn't travel because there was a mental health issue for someone she was traveling with. And the company would not honor that despite covering like everything. They wouldn't cover if there's mental health situation. And she said, you know, can they do that? I said, well, honestly, that sounds wrong, but let me check with the team. So civil rights team looked into it, started investigation. Guess what? They were denying people were having mental health breakdowns. People who, uh, for example, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, had doctor's notes saying, hey, this man cannot travel. There's a man in Wenatchee. They had a doctor's note, this man cannot travel, right? He's got Alzheimer's. They just denied all that and charged people all to the cost of their ticket, despite having paid for the ticket, right? And so... Um, they wouldn't change their practices. So we've had to file a lawsuit against them and that litigation is ongoing. And so stay tuned on that. But yes, that, that's a very important case and, and one we feel very strongly about and came from a Washingtonian just walking up to me at a meeting uh, on the east side, actually. So most of our cases actually come from that. LuLaRoe is another example. We just heard, honestly, when the team came to me with the idea of investigating them, I hate to admit, I didn't know what LuLaRoe was. I, I had no idea. It's a it's for those, I think everybody probably does know, but it's, it's a, a leggings company, basically. It's a multi-level marketing leggings company. So yes. it's a pyramid scheme was the allegation. And so we brought a case against them saying it's a pyramid scheme. But if you haven't seen this Lula Rich, this docu-series on Amazon, I don't watch many docu-series, but I did watch this one. And what's great is because we filed a lawsuit, very successful. They had to pay many, many millions of dollars that were able to return to these almost all women who are out all this money. They were promised 100%, uh, um, uh, 100% uh, return if uh, they didn't make money, that didn't happen. And so we're able to, to, to get money back to these many, many hundreds, if not thousands of Washingtonians. But uh, in there, they actually show, uh, what's great about it is they showed this couple who own LuLaRoe, them answering questions. And they're kind of so smooth and doing their thing. And then they cut, the next thing they'll often cut to is their deposition when they're being deposed by my attorneys, right? And trust me, they're a whole hell of a lot more evasive and slow to answer and shifty eyed. And but the contrast is great. And so I've had so many people at my kids' soccer games or Katie's softball games say, hey, I saw that Lula Rich. Man, your your lawyers are awesome. You know, so good. You know, they were so good. Oh my God. Lori and I were watching this and we were just absolutely amazed. And it's like, yeah, the, the juxtaposition between these two very silver-tongued yes. uh salesmen, charlatan types, and then you get them into this deposition and this yes, black yeah. background and they're just asking oh they're squirming under the lights it's amazing exactly <laughs> it's, it, it was great so it was a great outcome once again though no other state ag has brought a, a brought a case against them so we were the first states so they featured that lawsuit so much because it was the first 
real case brought by a state that went close to trial. We had all the depositions and all the discovery and all the documents. So it was something that, uh, um, that, we're, that we're proud of to get. The main thing is for all these cases, right, is accountability, but also return those dollars in that case back to Washingtonians who are harmed. And it feels good to do that, as you might imagine. Just a couple more questions. Uh, I want to ask very briefly about uh, some police reform laws that were passed in the legislature this Mm -hmm. year. I know that you recently met with representatives Jesse Johnson and Roger Goodman to discuss pushback from some state uh, law enforcement officers who are refusing to comply, uh, particularly around uh, the use of force measure 1310. And this is an audience question. Gail asks, what can Washington residents do to counter police and sheriff comments that they, quote, can't do anything when asked to respond um, what do you think, and I know this might be a little bit outside of your purview, but what do you think can be done to compel compliance? Well, it's a little bit tricky. I got to be a little careful in how I answer because as you might imagine, we give legal advice to our clients that involves the legislators you mentioned, legislators in general, the governor, you name it, right? That, that, that's our job is give legal advice about the interpretation of these state laws. Those clients make the decisions about, about what to do, of course, right? And of course, um, every local law enforcement official has their own law firm, right? If you're talking about a county sheriff, they have a county prosecutor's office. So, you know, one thing I would say is that if you're in a jurisdiction where you think your local law enforcement is is having some issues along those lines, I mean, you can write to those folks, right? And uh, um, and speak up about it. What I would say is that, you know, like a lot of things, it's, it's, it's a little complicated. You know, are there, and just being at a high level, you know, are, are there some parts of the many important laws passed by the legislature that are, are not clear necessarily when you kind of compare the different laws? What's the meaning of this compared to that one? How do they go together? Right. A lot happened. It happened quickly. Those were important laws. I want to be clear about that. The legislature, legislators, you mentioned others work very hard, but there is some some part of it is reasonable uncertainty. Right. Some part of it is reasonable certainty. Some part of it is not. OK. And so. Uh, one thing we're doing now, so that's why I'm being a little bit careful, is one thing we're doing now is we have been asked to give what's called an AG opinion on like 19 different questions about these laws. So my office would not, in fact, I would be ethically uh, unable to share what our legal advice is to Jesse, for example, or to Roger, those legislators, <laughs> right? That's confidential, as you all know. But we have a mechanism by which legislators or others can ask us for a legal opinion. And if we're able to do that, we, after months of careful analysis, we issue our view of a law, okay? What we think the law means. Those AG opinions are not binding on court, Stefan, but I can't remember the last time that a court disagreed with an AG opinion. I don't think it's happened since I've been attorney general and it's rare any time. It's part because we put so much thought into those, right? We really, really lay it out. And the public can express their thoughts about it as well. So through the, there's a process by which if you go to our website, if you're curious about that, you can actually, citizens can, lawyers can, anyone can say, hey, here's what I think these laws are all about, right? And so we then write those up. And so we have been asked, and, I, and those questions are public, I believe now, those 18 or 19, there's like eight, 10, eight questions with many subparts. So it's a lot of questions. And we'll be rolling those out here in the coming weeks and months. That will take time, but hopefully that'll provide some greater clarity for everybody on, on how these laws intersect and, and what they mean for law enforcement. Um, by the way, I should mention that nothing prevents a client, the governor, the legislators you mentioned, from sharing the advice we give them with the public. So we give them legal advice. We can't, I can't say it. I'm ethically, I cannot say it. 
but nothing stops them if they want to. And I think in a couple instances that they, they have actually shared a little bit of advice that the, the that sort of basic level of, hey, law enforcement, you can respond when there's a mental health situation. That's been reported in the press, for example. So, um, so those are some thoughts of kind of the role of our office. And it's my hope that here in the coming weeks and months that with AG opinions coming out, uh, that hopefully we, we can provide some, some greater clarity to folks. And, and we'll hope that those will, will rise to the level that, that people can consume them. Uh, so we are up against uh, the wall here. So sure. just, I will just ask you uh, what I've wanted to ask you since the very beginning of our conversation, and All then right. I, will, I will leave you to, to, to give any final thoughts that you would like. But so this is as, as somebody who's run these town hall series and, and run my podcast now for four and a half years. Um, this is what I'm hearing right now. Um, looking at what may be coming in 22 and 24, I think a lot of people are running very short on hope right now. Mm-hmm. They're angry, they're tired, and they are particularly frightened that the rule of law may not hold in this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how you think about this and, and how you remain hopeful. Well, you know, as every lawyer knows, the last question is always the, the trickiest, right, Stefan? So thanks for, for making that cliche true. Um, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, I've got a lot of thoughts about it. So, I mean, how about the, this is something I think about a lot. Okay. It's a big part of my life. Right. So I, I think about this a lot and my team thinks about it a lot. Um, and, you know, it kind of keeps me up at night, honestly. And so I guess some of my thoughts, you know, that I have a lot, a, a lot of thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll share a few things. So, you know, number one is, as you've probably heard me say, you know, I tend to be a half glass full kind of guy. I'm an optimist by nature. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I view the threats to our form of government as extremely serious, extremely serious, uh, serious in a way that I, I would never have thought possible, you know, not long ago. I, I would have been beyond my wildest dreams to type, type of like, no, 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 that could never happen. We couldn't have a coup attempt here. That's, that's insane, right? I just would not have thought even possible. And... It's not getting better. Uh, it is getting worse. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump is is systematically going about trying to change the landscape. So in 2024, if he's unsuccessful in his bid to reclaim the White House, he can have a successful coup. I talked about some of them, right? Supporting secretaries of state candidates in these key states who will clearly, he expects to do his bidding unlike the Georgia Secretary of State last year, right? Um, Sending a key message to anyone who voted for impeachment, clearing those folks out, right? Like in other words, if you do not believe in the big lie, you have no place in the Republican party now. It's it's a travesty that the Republican party that my mom and dad belonged to, right? Had events for Dan Evans back in the 1960s and ran for governor, right? They were proud to be Republicans, right? I mean, they were, they'd be Democrats now for God's sakes, right? But but a, a party with a proud tradition, I mean, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, for God's sakes, right? I mean, um, that this is what that party has come to is, is a huge challenge for our country. And Donald Trump specifically uh, is, is the key reason for that. And so, you know, what I mentioned earlier about trying to, so while I'm you know, I'm not sure what the words are said, right? Deeply concerned doesn't do it justice to what's coming in 2024, right? Um, but the way I look at it is, is I, I try not to, um, I, I guess what I try to do is, is 
fairly quickly pivoted my mind to what can I do about the situation, right? And we all have a different role, whatever our station is in life. You know, I'm, thank God every day, I happen to be the attorney general of a great state with a fantastic legal team that is extremely experienced on complex national issues. And, and I think is arguably the best in the whole country at that. And so, as I mentioned earlier, right, that we are, you know, it'll be a focus of our office to be as prepared as we possibly can be to do whatever we can within the limits of our authority, which is broad, but does have some limits to try to protect our democracy and our form of government and the valid election results and the will of the people in 2024. And, um, but it's a dark time. I mean, you, you just can't sugarcoat it. You're right. I, I tweeted out the day, right, in January, that dark day. I tweeted that day, can't sugarcoat it, coup attempt. And some people said, what are you talking about? I mean, it's not that bad, right? Like, I had this sense something's going on behind the scenes with Donald Trump with this going on. Sure enough, here we are. And so, um, you know, I worry about, you know, uh, the fractures within the institutions in our country, um, the loss of faith in, in the media, right? The destabilization of the media, which is in newspapers, you name it, right? Just with, with that that's going on. Um, will we have the newspapers uh, in four years that we have now in Washington State? Hey, the trend that's going, there'll be fewer of them, right? And that's not a good thing. So, you know, how long will the courts, you know, in 2020, when we challenged Trump and won those 44 cases, the administration did do what the courts ruled, right? Going back to the very first travel ban, right? Well, you know, if Trump's in office again, you think he's going to do what a federal judge and Seattle or Yakima or Spokane says he needs to do, I don't know, right? And part of it, I'm going on a little too long, Stephen, but I know that, you know, part of, I think it was the, the, the reporting from Woodward in his book was, so the list of things Trump wanted to do and on some things sort of the more extreme things, the team would say, that's second term. In other words, second term, we have to worry about going back to the people. Second term, we're just, I mean, think about what he did in his first term and he wanted to run for reelection. The idea of that guy being in the White House with no impeach twice, defeated the polls, the fact that he could then come back and take office, which is a distinct possibility, frightening, doesn't do justice to what the situation would be. And so I guess just to try and leave it on somewhat positive note is, uh, you know, what, what I can tell you is this is something I think about a lot. Um, and, uh, and my team thinks about a lot. And we're going to spend a lot of time doing everything we possibly can to be as ready as we can. And so, you know, as a state, we'll be doing more than our part, I can assure you. Um, we did more than our fair share in 2020. I can assure you we're doing far more than our fair share in 2024 if it comes to that. And uh, and welcome any ideas people have on that. You know, right now we're in the brainstorming phase of what does that look like? You know, what, what things can we do? And I've just encouraged my team, look, we're in unprecedented times. So we need to think creatively about what our role could be that may be very different than what's been historically, right? We may be doing things we just have not done historically as an office. As long as I've got the authority to do it, well, then you know, I plan on doing whatever I can to, uh, to make sure that, you know, that Katie can, my daughter, Katie can focus on her softball pitching and not worry about, right. Not worrying about a freaking coup going on in her country. Right. I mean, that's, you know, and you have your kids or your parents or your loved ones and right for all of us, that's what it's, that's what's at stake. It's nothing less than nothing more, nothing less. It's, it's really, um, the very foundations of who we are as a people. So I guess I, I you know, on a scale of one to 10, I view it as a, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty much close to a 10. And so 
I don't know if that's a positive or a negative where we end up, but I think it's reality. And uh, and just just as we close, I saw a lot of really nice comments, Lynn and others saying nice things. So so thanks for those kind words. And uh, and you know I'm energized, you know, by by the work. Um, I so appreciate the role that all of you play on these issues. One thing I've come to appreciate now in a kind of a long time in politics, longer than I care to admit, is you know you need folks at all levels doing work, right? You you need you need it all, right? You need grass works, grassroots folks working. You need party leaders doing it. Uh, you need you need responsible journalists, right? You need judges who do the right thing. You need elected officials who do the right thing. I mean, you, you name it, right? The list goes on and on and on. Everybody has a role to play. It's no time to be on the sidelines. I know this group is not on the sidelines. I just want to say how much I I appreciate that. It gives me energy to keep you know fighting for you, and just so much appreciate uh, you indulging me. Be a few minutes late uh, tonight, uh, so I could be with my daughter, and uh, hope you're all staying healthy. And uh, Stefan, looking forward to coming back sometime and, and doing this again and uh, and just really appreciate everybody's questions and uh, and your time tonight. Well, you know, sir, the feeling is mutual. And I will just say, you know, I, I agree that it's an all hands on deck moment and we uh, could not be more fortunate to have you in the position that you are in. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. And of course, thank you for joining us here tonight. Can we have a, a round of, 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 of hands and applause for our rock star attorney general? Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. It's great to see you all. Hope to see you sometime in person very soon. Thanks so yes. much, everybody. That would be yes. wonderful. Have a great, have a great night. Thanks so much. And that'll do it for this week. Special thanks to Julian Gievsky, Catherine Bobman, Kevin Jones, Louise Pathé, and Robin Gittleman. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video replay of this Town Hall, head to facebook.com slash washindivisible. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.